And Lord, we thank you for that hope that's in Jesus Christ. And we pray now that um, you would strengthen us. Lord, you tell us that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us to hear your word? And would you strengthen us to respond to your word? And, Lord, would you strengthen us to take this good news of being able to live without fear and to have an eternal hope to the world that so desperately needs hope right now? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As you have your seats, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts 21. Acts 21, we're going to be picking up in um, at verse 17 today. Continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. Acts 21, starting at 17. Page 1729, if you're looking for it in your... Bible in your chair. And so this is where Paul and his team are entering Jerusalem. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know There is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is God's word. Where's the welcome wagon? He's come into Jerusalem, and don't you, even even if you know that maybe this trip is going to have some bumps, you're hoping to get the warm welcome, right? Where's the welcome wagon? That question kind of came to my mind. I was thinking about a time when um, we welcomed someone into our home, 
And um, we were delighted to have this guest with us for a season. She was from Nigeria, and she came here to um, study at, it was RBC Ministries at that time, right? RBC, now it's Kuiper. <clears throat> and um, I don't know if I've told you the story before, but her name was Faith, beautiful young woman. Her dad had come to study, um, and then she felt like um, she wanted to honor her dad's wishes and came to the United States to study. And so um, we were so happy to have her. And so we hosted dinner and um, after church on Sunday and invited Dane's mom and dad to join us. And we also invited another young African-American woman that was studying at RBC at the time to join us um, as well. And so we were having lunch and celebrating Faith's birthday. And in the process of um, the conversation as it moved towards um, bringing the birthday cake out and our like tradition of having lights on the candles and sing the song and blow out the candles, um, she had mentioned that she needed a job, that she needed to make a little extra money. And um, anyway, I'm reminded of a time and a response that my father-in-law had that didn't roll out the welcome wagon. He, um, he was a very wonderful man in many, many ways. And I'm not dishonoring him, but he knew this and um, we knew it, that he was racist. And so when she said she needed a job, he said, hmm, well, maybe we can talk to Uncle so-and-so. I think he hires minorities. Faith's friend that um, was African-American immediately jumped up and ran out of the house. Faith followed her. Dane and I sat there in this in-between spot of like, Dad, what were you thinking? How could you possibly say this? But knowing he just was clueless and just absolutely did not realize that what he said could be offensive. We went out to the driveway Um, The friend that had grown up American, um, she was so angry. And um, we apologized profusely and said we were so sorry and could she possibly come back in? And no, she needed to leave. How did Faith respond? Faith hadn't lived the American experience and her family hadn't lived the American experience of being a slave. She had heard of it when she grew up in Nigeria, but she hadn't lived that experience. But she certainly could see how it impacted her friend from school. And it was a difficult thing, but she came in quietly. She um, said thank you for attending her birthday party, and she was going to go downstairs now. And um, she forgave, and she prayed for my father-in-law for that blind spot. You see, she's a Christian. My father-in-law's a Christian. We're Christians. And yet, we're all on the same team, but we can have cultural biases. We can have blind spots. We can make comments that are um, have a prejudice tint to it, but don't even, people don't realize it and don't recognize what they're saying can be hurtful. And so why does this, why does this text matter and how could this help us today? This text can help anybody. We're going to unpack some things that would be helpful 
when you face a difficult circumstance and conversations and conflict, there's things that we can look at Paul and how he responds and any of us can learn. And if we're Christians, we can learn things that will help us on our mission. And so we don't want to have blind spots. We don't want to respond in ways to one another that are hurtful. And so let's look at this a little bit more. In this passage, we see that they had come. If you remember, Paul and his team had been gathering from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches. Um, all, All of them had been contributing offerings to bring to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were undergoing significant oppression within their city because they were Jewish believers, and so the Jewish people were rejecting them. They were also living under um, the Roman rule, and so they were in a really, really difficult position. Many of them had lost their jobs and so forth. So um, Paul is coming excited to be able to share testimonies of all the ways God's been working and he's been seeing God working. And I notice that it says there, um, I want to just point this out, that Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done. Paul wasn't giving the credit to himself or his team. He's telling what God had done. And he's eager to share this. And he's also eager, and I imagine he's been anticipating the joy of being able to bring this offering to the Jews there in Jerusalem, the Christian Jews. You remember Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit had already warned him that this this arrival, this city, there was going to be difficulty there, but he felt compelled to go. He was full of the good news and he felt like somehow this trip into Jerusalem was going to result in kingdom advancement. And so he enters in And the writer of Acts spends many paragraphs, as you notice, in these coming weeks as we preach through this, um, talking to us about the grace of God to bring the gospel into Jerusalem. And yet, we'll see, the results and the rejection persisted. So we've got Paul in this story. We've also got the leaders of the um, Jewish church today. They mentioned that James, who's the brother of Jesus, and all the other elders were there. And friends, they're in a hard spot as far as leaders go because they support Paul and they have said and endorsed, yes, the Gentiles are meant to come into the kingdom too. The kingdom of God is for all people, all tribes, all nations. And yet they also are sitting in the leadership of a church that is heavily entrenched in a certain culture and ethnic pride and privilege that makes judgments about the rest of the world. And, um, and that those Jewish Christians, probably because of their judgments, their prejudices against the rest of the world, were really open um, and, and vulnerable to receiving false reports from the Jews who were against the Christians and they take in these lies and they, I guess they just don't second guess it or ask for clarification of this. And so um, the Jewish Christians are critical and to be critical. I read one person said it means to know a little and assume a lot. When you're critical of someone, you're often knowing a little bit and assuming a lot, making a lot of assumptions and then airing judgments 
You're speaking judgments about someone. And so the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were making judgments about Paul, that he was, he was not really being a good Jew anymore, they thought, because they thought, they heard that he wasn't following their customs. Well, they didn't get, they weren't able to verify. For one thing, we don't have the internet. We don't have cell phones. You know, we don't have ways to check fact finding. And so they're just taking it, you know, to heart that this must be the way that Jew, that Paul is treating their Jewish customs. And they don't realize that they've made a very wrong assumption about Paul because Paul was very much still staying true to his Jewish roots, but he had a call to the um, Gentile, all the rest of the non-Jewish people in the world. He had a call to all of us and he was trying to invite them into the kingdom without making them leave their own culture. They didn't, Gentiles did not have to become Jews and accept all the Jewish culture. They became Christians and the Jews were to become Christians, and that was to be the identity. That's a trouble. These kind of troubles between our cultures and how we interact with one another, even within God's kingdom, continue today. You know it, and I know it. And I've listened to several conversations about how that, whether it's our culture or just making assumptions of people, And jumping to conclusions, this kind of thing happens today. I listened to a conversation, and this is um, kind of a conglomerate so that it's not pointing out any one particular, if you say afterwards, oh, she was like bullying me from the pulpit. No, I'm not. This is a combination of things. But a person lashes out at someone that is close to them, and they're really, really critical and harsh. And the temptation is to jump back and defend yourself or say, what in the world are you doing and why are you acting like this towards me? Um, But do we stop to say, I wonder what's going on behind the scene and what what is really, why are they acting this way? Or do we just jump in and want to defend ourselves or put them in their place or tell them what's up? Or do we try to control them with the way that we might try to manipulate the situation and butter them up? Okay, well, if they're being really harsh, then, you know, I'm going to try to butter them up or whatever, trying to control or manipulate. Heard another conversation, and this one I really felt like it was at the end of a long evening, and I just made my way towards the door at this one, Um, but was with a group of people that are not from this church um, long-time friends, and anyway, um, and they were talking about a person was leaving their church. They had mentioned a bunch of different conflicts that were going on at their church, various parties, um, yeah. But they were this one where the this person that had worked with the cadets, which is a young men's program in the church for years, he was leaving their church because they had changed the cadet uniform in 2009. For instance, 2019. And he's got a 10-year grudge about changing a uniform because culture was changing and I don't know exactly why they changed the uniform or whatever. What um, He was so angry and he was cutting off. He wasn't going to finance. He wasn't going to put his tithes into the church anymore um, because he was so upset 
and making assumptions about why this decision had been made, but not going to the people, not confirming it. And then one final one. Um, I'm thankful that Classes North is, um, has developed a diversity committee and they're going to be working on anti-racism training for us and helping all of our congregations. But listening to um, African-American members of our denomination saying, getting frustrated because they keep trying to tell us things and we don't understand what they're saying and then they just throw up their hands and go, see, this is what I'm talking about. And some of the rest are sitting here on the table going, I don't even know what you're saying or trying to say. But we're missing each other because of cultural differences and cultural backgrounds. And it's sad and it's hurtful. And if we can't function in unity, then what does the world see? And Andy Stanley, in his book, Going Deep and Wide, I read that this week, and he draws the question, what do people see and hear and experience when they visit your church? And what's the word on the street about your church? Do they experience us as people that are full of grace and that aren't making assumptions about each other and are committed to unity? Or do they experience conflict and um, harsh disagreements and separations. And I guess I'd want to ask the question, what did the mission field in Jerusalem see and hear and experience upon Paul's initial arrival in Jerusalem? Think about what they could have experienced. They could have experienced a conflict right off the bat of Paul getting into a disagreement with the leaders or they could have experienced many different scenarios as we think about the players of James and the elders and Paul and the Christian Jews. But that's not the way it went down. What they experienced, at least initially, was unity. And why was that possible? Because Paul embodied the kingdom of God and his actions were speaking. I went back to see what did Paul say after the leaders let them know, let them know that the Jewish Christians were believing that he was abdicating his Jewish cultural customs. He didn't say anything. The writer does not record one more word about what Paul said in that meeting. He displayed meekness. Meekness, that word means Quiet, gentle, righteous, and obedient. Paul did not defend himself. There was no pride or fact-finding or comparison. When You know, think about this. Paul comes in and he's telling about all these kingdom moves of God and how the, the Gentile, the gospel spread through all this. And they did celebrate. And then they go, well, you notice, um, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed? And he didn't say, show me, or for real, or, you know, he didn't challenge or do any comparison. He listened. He didn't challenge their authority. They're saying, what shall we do? Here's the plan, Paul, go and do this. I mean, Paul could have said, I've just given you the offering. 
assuming that they already have given the offering by this time. Paul's planning a trip to Rome. You know, the idea of I'm going to not only pay in the this offerings of like how much it's going to cost for all four of these people that are doing these purification rites. I'm going to pay for all of them and for myself, for all the offerings, the sacrifices that will be needed and all. He doesn't do any of that. There's no grumbling. He's generous. He's committed to unity and love. And who is Paul following? He's following the example of Jesus Christ. Think about how Jesus emptied himself. He came to earth. He comes and he doesn't, there's people making accusations against Jesus and he doesn't come against them. He doesn't try to defend himself. Jesus was sheep, like what, silent like a sheep before the shearers, right? He lets the Lord defend himself. He lets the Lord bring out the truth when it's time. Paul was not able to do this on his own, but he follows the example of Jesus who laid down his very life because Paul was so committed that there was a gospel that needed to go forward and these Jews in Jerusalem needed to hear about Jesus. And he wasn't going to let the Jewish Christians that had wrong information and were making accusations about him stand in the way. And God gives grace to Paul to be kingdom-minded and trust the Lord to defend him. Now, I want to explain, what is this Nazarite vow? What are these men, these four men that have taken a vow? It's consecrating themselves to God, and it's a voluntary vow. And I think that this is very key to understanding Paul and understanding really the beauty of this passage. The Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow that I'm going to set myself apart completely for the Lord. And in that vow, they said, I'm not going to have anything to do with the grape. So I'm not going to drink wine. I'm not going to eat grapes. I'm not going to eat raisins. Now, I didn't do a lot of research about why that was, but that was just part of it that they were giving up. They also did not cut their hair, and they also did not come into contact with dead people. They were setting themselves apart as holy. But they weren't making themselves holy. They were setting themselves apart for God. And they recognized that it would be God who would make them holy because they had to bring offerings. The offerings they brought were a sin offering, a burnt offering, other offerings. And then they would have their hair cut and they would put that hair on the offering and that would be burned up as well. The Nazarites... You might remember in the Old Testament, um, Samson was a, had taken a Nazarite vow. And because he was consecrated to the Lord, he received strength. Um, Samuel was a Nazarite. His mother had actually made this vow for him. Um, and he was, he was set apart for the Lord, and the Lord gave him prophetic messages. And so when we're set apart, emptying ourselves from things from the world to receive the goodness of the kingdom of God, God can use us. And if they messed up during their time, and their time could be a month, or they could even commit themselves to a year or to a lifetime of being set apart for the Lord, 
they had the opportunity to start over again. And they'd just start back over again. They weren't commanded to do this, but it was voluntary. And I read commentators say that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers, actually they weren't required to do the Jewish customs. But remember, the Jews, it was God, Almighty God, Creator God, who they worshipped. It was the scriptures from God, God's word that had been given. And many of their customs actually pointed towards God. And so the Gentiles actually found great enrichment as they would start to participate or consider what, what do these customs seen through the picture of Jesus Christ, how does this help me in living my life for the kingdom of God? God's grace to us and the discipleship's team has called this church to a season of practicing Lent, of saying we will voluntarily, it's not required, but voluntarily we'll take this time between now and Easter for self-examination, fasting, and returning to God in any ways that we need to repent or to say, I I empty myself of this because I want to receive from God. And in a book that I ordered and am reading for Lent is 40 Days of Decrease by Alicia Cole. And in there, there was a chapter on fasting from criticism. And I thought, hmm, you know, I thought, Lord, what do you want me to fast from? You know, am I giving up chocolate or am I giving up this or that? And I feel like it's maybe more mental attitudes that the Lord's asking me personally to think about. And I want to invite you and just say, here's some things that the Lord might ask us to fast from. Maybe he's going to ask us to fast from criticism. Or maybe, like Paul, he was fasting from control. He completely surrendered himself into the Lord's loving care and went towards danger. How was that when he was standing before James and all of a sudden he's hearing this fasting from defending yourself against people's misunderstandings or what they would say about you? Maybe it's fasting from taking offense. Maybe you've been offended and you want to say, Lord, I want to fast from this. I don't want to nurture this offense. I want to lay it down. Maybe it's fasting and asking the Lord, Would you please show me my blind spots, my ethnic um, blind spots, my ways that I speak or that I act that actually hurt other people? There are different ways that the Lord might want to help us enter into this time of emptying ourselves, of being completely kingdom-minded. I'm for God and for his purposes and his purposes alone. I don't know about you. I don't know where you've been and how you've been, but I know in the past I've made judgments not having all the facts. I've spoken things that have been hurtful, and I've had to go back and repent and ask for forgiveness and say, I spoke of things I did not know. I'm sorry I've hurt you. Friends, if we think that we're going to have an impact in this world for the kingdom of God, 
this world is looking not for hatred and not for more conflict. They're looking for a place of peace and joy and love and unity. And within the church, we should embody these things because this is the kingdom of God expressed on earth through his church. And I believe the Lord invites us to take this seriously. Will we be meek? Will we be the people? Because Psalm 37, 11 says, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The world is watching and our mission is waiting. I'm going to give us some time to just sit before the Lord. And you might use this time to just pray and say, Lord, what are you saying to me through this passage? What are you showing me by the way that Paul responded in meekness to false accusation and to racial, really it's prejudice. He went, Paul went to God in prayer. What's he calling us to do when we look around at the culture and we look around at the challenges? What's he calling for each of us? And I'm going to ask Nate to come and just play instrumentally. And we're going to have a time of just sitting before the Lord and inviting him to search us. So, Lord, would you put the searchlight on us? And Lord, would you help us to um, be ready to surrender anything that um, is getting in the way so that we can be consecrated and fully devoted to being filled up with your love and your peace and your joy. Lord, I thank you that as we draw near to you, that you draw near to us. Lord, I thank you that you heal our broken hearts. Lord, I thank you that you bind up wounds. Lord, I thank you that you set us free if we're held in captivity to prejudice or racist thoughts. Lord, that in you there's freedom as we move toward you. Lord, I thank you that um, you choose to use the meek and I pray that you would help us to be completely and fully surrendered to you or that you would make us and make our lives into whatever you would have for us for your glory we pray so I'm going to invite us to turn our eyes to the screen and there's a written prayer that the Methodist church has used in a yearly consecration um, rhythm. And we, Pastor Dave and I, and the leadership team, felt like that this would be helpful. And so during the season of Lent, we're going to practice reading this prayer out loud together as part of our um, prayer together as a body. And so would you pray with me? Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing 
Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all to your pleasure and disposal. Amen. Church family, the Lord bless you with every ounce of strength that you need from His Spirit to keep those words that we just sang and that we just spoke in prayer. And it will take a lot. So the Lord bless you to grow in continued daily dependence upon Him. The Lord bless you to grow up into the meekness that is in Jesus Christ. And the Lord bless you with joy overflowing that comes from surrendering and living full of His Spirit. Amen.